Welcome to the podcast that takes you back in time to rewind and relive all things nostalgia in the world of professional wrestling. Get ready to go beyond the bell. With your host, ring announcer, Sean Beckerman. It is time to enter the war games, the match beyond. Welcome old school fans, this is Beyond the Bell, your pro wrestling nostalgia podcast, and I'm your host Sean Beckerman, back with you to cover the history of world championship wrestling. It is now at the point of this season in which we take you to the match beyond, one of the most famous matches created by the NWA slash WCW, simply known as the War Games, became arguably the most intriguing, exciting, identifiable, and imaginative event match idea, not just in WCW history, but in professional wrestling history. The War Games match was a gimmick match used originally in the NWA and later held annually in World Championship Wrestling. Initially, it was at the Great American Bash, in which we'll discuss that event. Then it became a part of the Great American Bash Tour house show circuit. So it was a part of the the Bash Tour network of house shows, in which we saw the Road Warriors usually battle the Four Horsemen, etc. But then... Later on in the War Games history, it was held at the customary Fall Brawl pay-per-view event in September for WCW. The match usually involved two teams of four wrestlers, initially five, in which we'll discuss, inside, who are locked inside a steel cage, which was encompassing, well, the whole cage encompassed two rings, but other variations were made as well. We'll go over the format in just a minute. Originally, War Games was created by Dusty Rhodes. When he saw the, the film Mad Max beyond Thunderdome. And remember that, that the steel cages were part of his career. It was originally used as a specialty match for the Four Horsemen. You know, I'm asked so many times, uh, says Dream, uh, where do war, ga- war games come from? I, I heard that you invented it, or you see this in social media all the time saying, well, Dusty Rhodes invented war games. He was part of the first war games. Obviously, I was. But uh, what made the match happen uh, was I was looking for some type of uh, uh, creative out uh, to where I was getting beat up by the four horsemen, really five, counting J.J. Dillon. And I had different partners, and we were fighting this war. And I had just come from seeing uh, Tina Turner, my girlfriend, and Mel Gibson in the Thunderdome, right? And I see this cage. And I see this top on the cage. And I know through the years in my industry, the cage match has always been a big part, especially down south, when you blew off matches. And so I said, has there ever been two rings with a cage, one cage covering both rings with with the top on it and two doors at each end and two teams of five? You know, there's guys behind the scenes everywhere. And we don't get to name them or talk about them a lot. But Klondike Bill was a great performer in the ring and outside of the ring. And as he got older, he just loved being around the business. He became the guy that set up the ring. Canadian Hall of Famer, former wrestling great, and now Chief Wrestling Ring Assembly Technician for the NWA, Klondike Bill. Klondike, good to have you here. So coming back from Greensboro, I got a white sheet of paper in the light of the, of the car, and I kind of drew an outline. 
of the way I wanted the war games to look, the way the cage was. And I knew Klondike would be back at the office there in Charlotte, you know, unloading the cage and putting, I mean, the, the ring and putting everything up. So I go, I get, by the time I get there, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm pretty roaring by the time I get there. I got this idea and I, want, I don't want to wait till in the morning. So I lay it out to Klondike on the street, out in the parking lot, on the street, get on my knees and get him on my knees with a flashlight and show him I want this built. And I've got the okay from Jimmy Crockett and Crockett Promotions. He's standing right over there, so you can build this thing. He said, well, where does it go? I said, it's going to hang above the ring and it's going to drop down. He thought I was completely nuts, you know what I mean, at the time. Really just, they would set the cage up for regular cage matches. It would take an hour to watch them. You would be in the back and they would, you know, it wasn't dropped from the ceiling, you know. Uh, you know, they, they brought it in side by side at a time and they set it up and they tied it together and there it was. This thing was going to be dropped with a top on it, covering two rings, okay, with two doors on each on each end. And old Klondike, uh, he worked on it like a mad scientist. You know what I mean? I could see him with that thing flipped down, welding as it started to come to life. You know what I mean? So, and there it was. Uh, you know, it was an event. It was an event for me to watch it come to life. It was almost like. It's like anybody that, that creates anything, I think, once they see it, once you feel it, once, once it's been yours or once you've touched it and you watch it and you sit back and you see it come to life, it's, it's amazing. It's like babies being born. Nothing is more amazing than that, obviously, but not comparing babies to war games. But it, it's, it's just something that comes over you to where for that second, it, uh, it takes your breath away, man. It's just like, wow. The first War Games match took place in, at the Omni in Atlanta during the NWA's Great American Bash 87 tour, which I just mentioned. This was where it was known simply as War Games, the match beyond. It would then be held at two house shows later that year, once in Chicago at the UIC Pavilion and the other in which I was able to attend at six years old at the NWA's debut at the Nassau Coliseum on Long Island. The next year, it will be held during the Great American Bash Tour in 88 at 11 house shows. The final War Games matches under the NWA banner were at the Great American Bash 89 and a house show rematch at the Omni in Atlanta. WCW used it originally in 1991 at War and at five house shows during the 1991 Great American Bash. This was the Great American Bash Tour, to be more specific. And in 1992 at Wrestle War, before it became a traditional fall brawl event from 93 to 98. The earlier war games, generally from 1987 to 1992, are regarded as some of the, of the best matches in NWA and WCW history. The format, let's discuss what separated war, the war games as opposed to other events, not just in WCW, but in professional wrestling history. The war games match consisted of two teams of either four or five men, each facing off with each other in a staggered entry format. 
The, the setup of the cage consisted of two rings side by side with a giant ring encompassing cage that covered both rings, but not the ring side area. Doors were placed at the far corners of the rectangular cage so the two teams didn't come into contact before they were supposed to. The match began with one member of each team entering the cage. After five minutes, a member from one of the teams, usually determined by a coin toss, but also been determined by a match or by a contest, such as an arm wrestling match, a live fan poll, things of that nature. This is almost always the heel team in order to provide heat earlier on in the bout. That star would enter the cage, giving his team the temporary handicap advantage. After two minutes, a member from the other team would enter to even the odds. Entrance alternated between teams every two minutes, giving the coin toss winning team the temporary advantage in the numbers game before giving the other team the advantage with the freshest man and even odds. Once all eight or ten men, depending upon the team size, had entered the cage, what was referred to as the match beyond began. The match would officially begin once all competitors were eligible in the ring. Both teams would brawl in the cage for as long as it took until a member of either team submitted, surrendered, or was knocked unconscious. There was no pinfall, no disqualification, which often led to a brutal and bloody confrontation. Now, this stipulation caused some argument with professional wrestling experts where they felt Tony Schiavone specifically most recently stated that having no pinfall in the match kind of makes it lose luster in a way the match where you're just responding to a submission or a knockout as opposed to getting the crowd to rear and count for the one, two, three pinfall. Nevertheless, it was different, unique, and the war games were created. This edition of Beyond the Bell is brought to you by the High Spots Wrestling Network, the largest collection of videos in independent wrestling today. 80stees.com makes me feel like a kid again. I can picture myself opening up the brand new Junkyard Dog LJN Wrestling Superstars rubber action figure. I am ready to style and profile with my Ric Flair retro tee. I also grabbed the original Hot Rod Ringer tee so I can host Piper's Pit with my five-year-old son. I even bought his first ever Hot Rod tee as well. From Andre the Giant to Macho Man Randy Savage, 80s Tees takes you back in time to celebrate your all-time favorite wrestling legends. All of their tees provide you with a vintage look and feel. You can also be involved in the production process as you can crowdfund your favorite designs. 80stees.com. Delight and amaze the kid in us all. On tonight's edition, I would like to go over the top 10 War Games matches. Not in chronological order, and I would say don't include necessarily in the order of best or worst to best. I think these are just some of the 10 matches I suggest you go back to watch. There have been plenty to, to review over the years, and some you can't even watch because they were over the house show circuit. So let's discuss the first of our 10 War Games matches. Along came 1987. 
at a little thing called War Games. It was the icing on the cake and cemented really, I think, my status and my feeling as a true NWA fan, being five, six years old, being a WWF fan, loving the entertainment side. This is when I realized the NWA was the more serious, quote-unquote, serious promotion. This was the sport of professional wrestling. Dusty, Nikita, and the Road Warriors taking on the Horsemen. This would be more than most seven-year-old brains can handle at the time. Through the years, the match involved, it really evolved with different teams and stables and even bled over into other promotions through the years in slightly altered formats and has just been rebranded now under the NXT banner. And for the first time in WWF slash WWE history, the War Games match took place this, this past November for NXT TakeOver. But during the WCW era, however, War Games became something of a September tradition at the Fall Brawl pay-per-view. Despite originating during the summer months of the Great American Bash and the Great, Great American Bash Tour, like I mentioned, since then, TNA, Ring of Honor, Combat Zone Wrestling, who I used to ring announce for, Major League Wrestling, MLW, and others, now most recently NXT, like I stated, have used a variation of War Games. WWE's Elimination Chamber was clearly inspired by the War Games, but differs enough not to be included in the list, I would say, mainly due to the lack of teams. Keep in mind, Cincinnati, you are going to have the distinct privilege of being involved in the most violent sport in the world. It's the American Bash, and it's the War Games. The double cage over two rings. Five guys on each team. It's blood, it's guts, it's violence at an all-time high. And you know what it is? It's to the victor goes everything you want in this world. How about it, Big Bear? You know, tell you what, when I used to be over on the other side watching what was going on over here, I used to get butterflies. I used to talk to the Road Warriors and Sting and Luger, and they always just say, golly, guys, what are we going to do tonight? Well, I'll tell you what. When I'm on this side looking over there at y'all, I don't have butterflies because we all know for sure exactly what's going to happen. Horseman style is going to be done in this cage, and I guarantee you there's going to be some people hurting and crying and bleeding over there. Isn't that right, Double A? Double A. Come on up here. Come on. Spread out. There's never a question of what we're going to do. When you're over there wondering what you are going to do, we're walking around laughing, giggling, finding out what our company's going to be from the evening. Because when you are what they say you are, the dirtiest players in the game, what we do is come natural inside a cage. Most of the NWA WCW era war games matches occurred at house shows and weren't televised, which makes it kind of hard to judge the quality firsthand, but we'll go over the ones that were televised. War Games 97, the Horsemen, ver the Four Horsemen versus the NWO. This was one of the last moments in wrestling that truly shocked fans from a storyline perspective. Team NWO consisted of Kevin Ash, Six or Six Pac, Sean Waltman, Conan, and Marcus Alexander Buff Bagwell. And the Horsemen, their counterparts, encompassed the Nature Boy Ric Flair, 
Chris Benoit, Steve Mongo McMichael, and Kurt Henning. This was a key point in the NWO saga and storyline battling WCW. At this point, the NWO had been running roughshod for a while. A lot of fans were thinking the same thing. Why haven't the Horsemen done something about this? Why haven't they done anything about it? The obvious answer to the question is that the power structure in WCW didn't see a use for the old guard to serve as opposition to the hottest thing in wrestling at the moment. The Horsemen's momentum had admittedly been stalled by the fact that Arn Anderson was forced into retirement by an injury. There seemed to be a solution on hand, though, as Kurt Henning joined the Horsemen and took, quote-unquote, the spot of AA, the Enforcer. Henning and Flair had progressed through an on-again, off-again relationship during their shared time in the WWF. And Henning was a natural fit for the Horsemen. I thought when I heard Kurt Henning join WCW, a perfect fit to be a Horseman. He was a second-generation star. He was a great technical wrestler. Even that exuded arrogance and class of the Horseman. He would be a great mentor for Chris Benoit and wouldn't impede Mongo's role as the muscle of the group. Everything about Henning in the Horseman fit. Or it seemed to. Or you would think it would for longevity purposes. Finally, WCW seemed to have a horseman unit that could go to war with the NWO for a while. It wasn't meant to be, however. This match is all about the ending. This is one of the last moments in wrestling history that truly shocked fans from a storyline perspective. Fans believe they never saw Henning swerve coming. As the internet age was still very young, fans sat stunned as emergency personnel tended to Ric Flair to end the pay-per-view. Kurt Henning turned his back on the horseman to join the NWO. The match itself wasn't the best, but the ending was one of the most memorable in War Games history. Personally, I was surprised and kind of frustrated and angry that Henning left the Horseman to join the NWO. I thought he would have been a perfect fit to stay a Horseman, to carry out the legacy, especially losing Arn Anderson as an active competitor. And he went to the NWO, in my opinion, to be just another WWF number under the stable. They're building a dome of steel in Atlanta, a cage to enclose the match beyond the war games. The might of giants when the dreaded four horsemen clash with the force of the superpowers. Ten men will enter, only five will leave. In two rings back to back, it's one on one, then two on one. A flip of the coin decides which team dominates. Finally, the full battle is joined. The four horsemen and the superpowers collide. Submission or surrender will decide the victors in the match beyond the war games. There, when they drop the dome. Saturday, July the 4th in Atlanta. The War Games! War Games 96, 1996. Team WCW versus Team NWO. Most War Games are an ending. This was a beginning. Team NWO consisted of Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and NWO Sting. Team WCW was Ric Flair, Lex Luger, Arn Anderson, and... The original man called Sting. This features the last words Sting would speak 
for a very long time. We were only a couple of months removed from Hulk Hogan joining Hall and Nash to form the New World Order, and WCW decided to take their best shot. Flair, Sting, Luger, and Arn all represented not just the best that WCW had to offer, but the heart and soul of the promotion. The build-up to the match, and much of what the NWO would continue to do for a long time to come, featured the NWO trying to convince people that Sting had joined them. The plan worked, as even Sting's closest friend, the total package Lex Luger, didn't trust him going into this match. The crowd was white hot for this match, and even big sexy Kevin Nash had his working boots on here. When the NWO's version of Sting joined into the contest, the crowd sort of hushed, and WCW's commentary team sold it like it was the real deal. Whereas most war games are an ending, like I stated, this was a beginning. Sting came in and cleaned house, and then asked Lex Luger if that was good enough for him. he Then he just left. The NWO capitalized with a 4-on-3 advantage for the win, and the era of the Crow Sting was underway. The crowd was left shell-shocked, and WCW would be off to the races for a couple of years, defeating the WWF. Personally, I knew something was off with that Sting. The nose seemed different. It just wasn't the real stinger. The body was a little bit thicker. The NWO actually had an imposter sting, and that sting character would continue on a part of the NWO, known as NWO sting or the fake sting, and we would see the birth of arguably one of the greatest characters in WCW history, the Crow Sting. Well, you know something, Hulkamaniac? Tomorrow night in Asheville, North Carolina, we're going to war, brother. And everybody knows that Hulk Hogan's team is ready, man. You know, I'm not worried about Vader going AWOL because I get that Lex Luger who's right on the edge. We don't know where he's coming from. So that means Hulk Hogan's team of the Macho Man and Sting will be right on the edge. When we're in a steel cage against all the members of the Dungeon of Doom, we're going to be fine-tuned and we're going to be ready for war. Don't worry about Hulk Hogan and my team of Luger staying in the Macho Man. But, you know, just like Amelda Marcos has shoes in her closet, Hulk Hogan's got more motorcycles than she's got shoes. You know, the ribbon bike might be appropriate for this occasion because we could rip people apart, but I don't think so. You know, the theme of Hulkamania with the title bit on the line is a nice touch, but that's not fitting for the occasion. And then everybody knows that Hulk Hogan, with the largest pythons in the world, is bad to the bone, brother. But that's not what War Games is all about. When I come putting into Asheville, North Carolina, I'm going to be on my favorite motorcycle, the Black Beauty, that all the little teeny Hulkamaniacs gave me a few months ago. By far, my favorite ride, brother. By far, the baddest Harley Davidson around, dudes. So in Asheville, North Carolina, when you see the Black Beauty outside the building, you know the Hulkamaniacs are ready for war, brothers, because War Games, the most dangerous match in the WCW, with Hulk Hogan's team, a Luger Sting, the Macho Man, and the Maniac himself on the edge, brother, with a camouflage. Anything goes in the cage. Kevin Sullivan and your dungeon of goons, brother, will pay the price. 
And if things go my way, brother, the last five minutes will be dedicated to the demise of Kevin Sullivan, brother. Because after I get you alone in the cage, I'm going to bring my black beauty, my brand new Harley Davidson, into the arena. As I tie you to the tire, I'm going to drag you round and round the town of Asheville, North Carolina, brother. And when all's said and done, when the Dungeon of Doom is gone, when War Games is over and Sullivan's laying at my feet, the final dark cloud, brother, the giant, the one that says my future is etched in stone, will come calling at my door. I know he will, brother. And when the giant comes after Hulk Hogan, when war games are said and done, the light, the power of the red and yellow, a Hulkamania, will live forever. So what you gonna do, Dungeon of Doom, when Hulk Hogan, Sting Macho, and the Luger, my band of maniacs, in war games, run wild on you! The second ever war games, War Games 2, The Explosion. Who knew that taking a manager out of the match would actually make it worse. Team number one consisted of Dusty Rhodes, Nikita Koloff, Hawk and Animal, the Road Warriors, along with their manager, Paul Ellering, who was in the match. Team number two consisted of Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, Lex Luger, and War Machine. This was part of the Great American Bash Tour in 1987. If you need a history lesson on the feud between Dusty Rhodes and the Four Horsemen, then you're either a young fan or a novice wrestling fan. But we've covered this briefly in our WCW 101 series earlier in the season. And we can also break it down even more when we go over our famous or uh, infamous rivalries and best feuds in professional wrestling history. That will be coming too. But Dusty's feuds with Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson, Lex Luger, and Ric Flair, both individually and collectively, were the stuff of legend. This is what legends were made of, and Dusty made these feuds work so very well. It was, in all, honest, in all honesty, a big part of what made the era from 1984 to 1989 such a golden era for professional wrestling. The NWA had Dusty versus the Horsemen. The WWF had Hogan versus Piper. Also Hogan versus Piper, Orndorff, Savage, and Andre. The AWA had Nick Bockwinkel, Kurt Henning, and Jerry Lawler. World Class had the Von Erichs versus the Freebirds. Things were good all over. This was a rematch from earlier in the Bash Tour, with one notable exception. Due to an injury sustained in the original War Games match, J.J. Dillon could not be a part of this one. The quick fix was to put Big Bubba Rogers in a spandex bodysuit and, and mask and call him War Machine. The future big boss man will be in spandex to replace the mentor, the mind behind the horseman, James J. Dillon. Who knew that taking a manager out of the match would make it worse? Ellering and Dillon served a definite purpose in these matches. And this one just didn't feel the same without JJ. All told, though, the match featured the top eight guys in the NWA in one match and was still incredible to see. War Machine took the submission, letting Dusty and company come out on top without making any of the horsemen look weaker. Barry Windham starting out for his team. Wait a minute, Brian Pillman broke away from the pack over here. Brian Brian broke away from the pack, and he's going for 
He's going for revenge. Yeah, this thing's underway, baby. I don't think Flying Brian was a designated choice to start this one. When the misses that clothesline, but Flying Brian didn't. Look at his left arm and shoulder, heavily taped from that injury from last night. I'll tell you what, I think we got our questions answered. There he is, brother, Brian Pillman. Pillman Whoa. right in the cage, catching Wyndham right in the face with both feet. And Scissor takes him over. What a move by Flying Brian. I'll tell you what, Big Sid's got a hold of uh, Big Brian here, like you said. I don't know what he's going for. Into the top of the cage. Into the top of the cage. Into the top of the cage here. Look at this. Jimbo, look over here. Vicious. Oh, oh my goodness! Right on that shoulder! Right on well, that he's shoulder! Out. He's, he's out, out, baby. He's out. He's out on his feet right over here. Not again, not again, Jimbo. Oh, not again. Not again. Not again. Oh, good man. Man. Pillman is out. He's out. Pillman is Look out. At Vincent. Look at the face of Sid Vincent. Vincent likes it. Flying Brian is unconscious. Al Ems is asking. You can't ask him. He's asking. Oh, who's this coming? Hey, this is his little buddy in here, brother. Look, he ripped the door of the cage off. My holy Helicopter coming over the top. Referee Nick Patrick is in there. What's he doing? What's he saying, Jimbo? Pillman can't. He's, Pillman is unconscious. He can't defend he's himself. Call, he's calling this thing. The referee's gonna call it. The referee's gonna call it. He's calling this thing. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, referee Nick Patrick has declared the match over because Lion Bright cannot continue. The winner's Ric Flair. Harry Windham. Okay, what? Larry Zabisco. Sid Vicious. Wrestle War 91, Sting Squadron versus the Four Horsemen. Power bombs are not for War Games matches, and this was blatantly known in this event. Sting's squadron consisted of Sting, Brian Pillman, Rick Steiner, and Scott Steiner, the Steiner brothers. The Four Horsemen consisted of Ric Flair, Barry Windham, Sid Vicious, and Larry Zabisco. This was Flair's last great stand before jumping to the World Wrestling Federation. This match owes a lot of its reputation to the ending. That's what, well, that's somewhat unfair as the action leading up to the decisive moments wasn't that bad at all. It's not quite up to par with other War Games matches, but those are some of the best matches in wrestling history, so there's no shame there. What really hurts things was the absence of Arn Anderson. Due to his injury, the horsemen were forced to replace him with Larry Zabisco. Larry Z was always a capable worker and a fantastic heel. But he just wasn't Arn, especially for the purposes of being a part of the horsemen. This match was also the boiling point of several angles running through WCW at the time. Flair and Sting had obvious history... Wyndham and Pillman had been feuding, and Arn and Wyndham had been running roughshod through the tag ranks that included the Steiner brothers. Additionally, this was right after Scotty had taken Flair to the limit on a Clash of the Champions 
event in a singles match. The final most important piece of the puzzle was Sid Vicious, who learned a very important lesson. Power bombs are not for war games. Ever, I'd say even period. Sid went to powerbomb Brian Pillman, and it got botched because of the low ceiling on the cage, and Brian Pillman almost died in that ring at that event. Insane. Not to be deterred, though, however, Sid tried it again before El Gigante charged in to surrender on behalf of Flying Brian. Brian's neck almost broke when Sid flipped him over for the powerbomb at that event. No powerbombs. And I think that uh, that one move right there was one of the reasons why in the NXT reincarnation of the, of the War Games, they removed the ceiling of the cage. Five minutes, anything goes. And then a coin toss to determine which team will have a two-on-one advantage and an advantage throughout the match beyond. Okay, at the halfway point of this round, the neck breaker. Only when all ten men are in the ring... Can the match end? And that's when the match beyond begins. The return match at the Omni, July 4th. J.J. Dillon injured by the Red Warriors. 30-second mark now. In less than 30 seconds, it'll be a three-on-two advantage in favor of the Horsemen. It appears it'll be the world champion, Ric Flair, when the bell rings. And there it is. It is Ric Flair, and now three-on-two. Both Flair and Anderson chopping away at Hawk once again in the corner. Both men into the turnbuckle goes Hawk. Oh, and he comes out with a double clothesline and nails both the champion and Arn Anderson. Exploding out of the corner, Road Warrior Hawk, but Flair with that low blow nails it. And Hawk goes right to the fence. The fans of the Orange Bowl watching the action in both rings now as Dusty Rhodes nailing both the champion and the war machine. Both go down. Left hand of the head. And Flair and Rhodes go at it in the opposite ring. The next time the bell sounds, it'll be a three-on-three. War Games 11, Team Dusty versus the Horsemen. This has been, I'd say, WD's best use of the Crockett Libraries, this specific match to promote under their collections. Team Dusty was consistent of, of course, the American Dream himself, Nikita Koloff, Steve Williams, Dr. Death, Lex Luger, and Paul Ellering. The Horsemen consisted of The Nature Boy, Art Anderson, Tully Blanchard, Barry Windham, and J.J. Dillon. Where are the Road Warriors, may I ask? Well, they were in something of a holding pattern here. Hawk and Animal had been built up to square off with the powers of pain, the Warlord and Barbarian, but they jumped ship to the WWF. Hawk and Animal then took on the replacement team of Ivan Koloff and the Russian Assassin and competed in a huge triple cage match that blew off the Jimmy Garvin vs. Kevin Sullivan feud. Think of that. A lower mid-card feud like Jimmy Garvin vs. Kevin Sullivan warranted the inclusion of the Road Warriors and the entire Varsity Club, as well as a three-story cage match. The equivalent to that in today's wrestling would be, let's say, you you have... Gallows and Anderson taking on the Usos and the Hell in the Cell match at SummerSlam with no titles whatsoever on the line. This match, however, had a perfect dynamic. Dusty's team was loaded with physically imposing guys, superstars like Nikita, Doc, and Luger, but the Horsemen controlled the world, the United States, and world tag team titles at the time. 
Fans were desperate to see the Horsemen take a beating, but ending their title runs would have been bad for business. This gave the fans what they wanted without ruining the Horsemen's momentum. The best part? J.J. Dillon was back, which meant there was someone to take the loss without hurting the Horsemen again. This had been WWE's best use of Crockett Libraries to date, I'd say, pulling out stuff that had never been seen and included it on DVDs as extras. Hopefully there's more of this in the future to show these little nuggets of how important the War Games was in professional wrestling history. Team Dusty versus Team Horseman. War Games 11. Check it out. We are now prepared for war. Hogan. 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 You realize... You are going into the most dangerous match of all times. War Games. Two steel cages. The Dungeon of Doom against the Hulkamaniacs. I told you life would not be easy. <laughs> You're the one that created me. You and I can't coexist. And this planet. Ha ha! I can feel evil in the cage! You locked in with a second ago! Shock! Kamala! Mazodia! Ming! All eight of us at the same time. <laughs> the scarf on your head will start to smoke and boil. Soon your hearing will go. The master himself will drive the wagons with all the Hulkamaniac carcasses laying on it. The Dungeon of Doom brought you these poses, but they expired. We love you not. We actually hate your guts. <laughs> and we hate you! <laughs> you know what's gonna happen to the mortal Hulk Hogan? <laughs> You're gonna get buried! You're gonna get buried. My heart goes out to you! <laughs> At the end of July, right after, of course, uh, the Bash of the Beach telecast, Hulk Hogan declared war on the Dungeon of Doom. It has come to this. But the Dungeon of Doom got the first shot in when the giant with a monster truck earlier in the evening crushed Hulk Hogan's pride and joy, the Harley Davidson given to him by the fans. The, would you like to interrupt me again? The Harley Davidson given to him by the fans from Orange County Harley Davidson. Nevertheless, as we prepare for war, it is... It is the members of the Dungeons of Doom against the Hulkamaniacs. Hogan, Sting, the Macho Man Randy Savage, and Lex Luger. There's been some dissension with the Hulkamaniacs, but I think they are ready for the ultimate battleground, Brain. Is my Energizer battery in? Can I speak now? Yeah. You mind? i got some very important things I'd like to say. Well, very we important things guess right what? now. We don't have time. Let's take a look as we prepare for war. We don't have time. Some believe that we are put on this earth for a reason. We have a special purpose. We are part of a divine plan. Especially this man. The Chosen. 
but possesses an innate power. He and his father are one. Combining their powers and summoning the shark, the zodiac, Kamala, Ming, the face of terror, and the giant. Together, they have put Hulk Hogan to the test. They have lured him to the dungeon of doom. They have taunted. They have attacked. They have brought the immortal to his knees and dredged up haunting memories of the past. Then all of a sudden I felt this aura, this presence. I felt Andre Man right in my face. Although the immortal one has an inner strength like no other man, He feels the need to put an end to the Dungeon of Doom. But he will not act alone. The Pythons and the Hulkamaniacs declare war! His army of elite warriors, Sting, Macho Man, are war-torn survivors. And now that Vader is AWOL, the Hulkamaniacs have called upon a specialist, Lex Luger. I called Luger into the team, man! But like Vader, can he be trusted? And I'll stand with you side by side for one condition. I want that title shot down the line, you promise. Or is Lex Luger another of the Taskmaster's disciples? At Fall Brawl, the world will see. We have a sum of the truth, so ladies and gentlemen, tonight of yeah, War yeah. Games, the Hulkamaniacs versus the Dungeon of Doom, and Hulk, Finally. as captain of the team, I've got to liken this to the invasion of Normandy in 1945. Well, you know, you can liken it to whatever you want, big dude, but right now, my War Games, my teams are together, brother, and we just drank a couple gallons of Agent Orange, brother, so we're impervious to pain, man, and with the Stingers aerial assault, the power of Luger breaking them in half, and the Macho Man Coming from all different ways, brother. What are they going to do when the team of maniacs declares war in just a couple minutes, brother? Is you, there dissension yeah. here? Is there dissension? Not even. Nice. I said what I had to say when I had to say it. And the stinger, he straightened me out. United, we stand. Need a little excitement. Watch this fearsome foursome. We are devastating, yes. yes or no? That's the ticket, yes is the answer, me, Gene, you know me. I'm sick and tired of talking. I just want to go to war instantly. It's one heck of a team that you're looking at right here. We got all of our oars in a row, and I don't want to talk anymore. Let's just go to the ring right now and tear them apart. Whoa, wait a minute, I don't know. Have you reached the comfort level? Well, I've got the camouflage on. War games are on. I'm with them. I'm ready to go. It's the tell the bell tolls right now it's time to turn it on and we are together as together can be all right yeah, you know something me gene we were questioning our own integrity a few minutes ago but all i had to do was look lex in the eyes brother and i knew right then he was american made from head to toe brother so the macho man told us dta don't trust anybody don't take no prisoners, brother. And my team is focused now on getting rid of the Dungeon of Goom, brother, because I want five minutes with a test You know, baby, they've all got red, white, and blue running through their veins because they were born and raised in the USA, and we're ready for war games, baby! All right, Hulk, I'll tell you what. Uh, 
I feel real sorry for anybody who gets on our way to and from in the ring and what happens in the middle. We cannot be held responsible for Lex Flex Macho Sting and the Hulkster. We're going to run wild in that double steel cage. What are they going to do, brothers? What are they going to do? We're going to use him as bait, man. Let's set him up. He'll be a good bait. Come on, let's go, Meiji. All right, uh, they are headed toward the ring for war games. And, of course, don't forget about the match beyond. It is the Hulkamaniacs, Hulk Hogan, Sting, the Macho Man, Randy Savage, Lex Luger, against the Dungeon of Doom, led by the Taskmaster, Kevin Sullivan, Shark, Kamala, Zodiac Man, and Ming, the face of terror. Pull up your socks and get ready. Michael Buffer, let's get to the ring and you, my friend. Wrestle War 92. Sting Squadron versus the Dangerous Alliance. The Dangerous Alliance managed to do what no other heel stable has truly done. Sting Squadron consisted of Sting, Nikita Koloff, Dustin Rhodes, Barry Windham, and Ricky Steamboat. The Dangerous Alliance consisting of Rick Froude, the Ravishing One, Stunning Steve Austin, Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton, and Larry Zabisco. The end of the Dangerous Alliance started here. The Alliance managed to do what no other heel stable has truly done, capturing the same magic that the four horsemen had in a different way. They were spearheaded by a clear leader in Rick Rude, had a great tag team component in Art Anderson and Bobby Eaton, and a great secondary single star in Stunning Steve Austin, and an enforcer in Larry Zabisco. They waged a relatively successful war against the top faces in the promotion, feuding with Sting, Rhodes, and Wyndham, as well as Ricky Steamboat. It didn't last as long as the horseman run, Horseman's Run, obviously, but for a few months, they had the same feel. They even had a loudmouth manager to put things over the top, as Paul E. Dangerously was a fantastic heel in his own right. This match started the beginning of the end of the, the Dangerous Alliance, as Zabisco's submission ended his part in the group, and they just sort of faded away after this. For a while, though, WCW was really onto something here, and it really seems pretty typical in retrospect of the promotion and things that went well for them. But Wrestle War 92, the Sting Squadron took on Paulie's Dangerous Alliance. Check that one out. <laughs> I've heard some silly talk going around here. Silly talk. I've heard some real silly talk. They're saying that we should be worried in the war games, and I think yeah. they're pretty silly. Anybody with a half a brain, Michael, can take a look at their television set right now, and you tell me, baby, look into that tube, and you look like us, would you be worried? No, 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 no. We don't care, do we? No, 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 Michael. Tell them how we feel, will you, please? First of all, we don't have to care. The reason we don't have to care is we got what you want. And you know what you can do? You can one one hand, do what you know else in the other, and see which one fills up first, boys. <laughs> because sitting right beneath us is the savage beast yes. that came across yes. our boat. No, they didn't live on no jet airliner. No, they didn't 
Silver Eagle. They paddled across on a boat, and they've been going in your face, Road Warriors, and they've gone down and ripped your heart right out. And then the Midnight Express, the most technical team in professional wrestling, has had technical breakdowns. And then, who could forget Dr. Death, the meanest, awesome man in professional wrestling until the sight of Terry Bam Bam Gordy. Understand this, we go in the outdoor, we go up the downstairs, we are in and out of trouble, we're the talk of the town, and we get wild in the streets when the sun goes down, and the sun is set, and it's time for war. You understand, they say, whoa, good God, y'all, what is it good for? Tell them what it's good for. Let me just like this. You know, we're gonna end, we're gonna end the war because we got the bombs and tonight we're gonna drop the bomb on Baltimore, Maryland and it's gonna explode right through your television set. You understand that, Warriors? Midnight and Dr. Death, the whole thing has come to an end. We're gonna drop the bomb tonight. The Great American Bash 1989 Tag Team Warfare took place, and this ended up being a nice footnote in Gordy's personal history with Dr. Death. Team number one consisted of the Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal, Bobby Eaton, Stan Lane, and Steve Williams. Team number two was Michael Hayes, Jimmy Garvin, Terry Gordy, Samu, and Fatu. Not a ton of strategy or build-up to this one. The closest thing to a feud that this match encapsulated was the Midnight Express managed by Jim Cornette taking on Paul E. Dangerously's Samoan SWAT team. This was a follow-up to the Midnight Express taking on the original Midnight Express and was a much, much better program overall. The Samoan SWAT team had been built to look like an unstoppable monstrous force and were on the verge of being considered viable opposition for the road warriors the freebirds were experiencing a bit of a renaissance after dropping buddy roberts and adding jimmy garvin to the picture gordy terry bam bam gordy wasn't doing much wrestling at this point but was still a key part of helping hayes and garvin win matches he'd be instrumental in helping them win the nwa world tag team titles later on and this ended up being a nice footnote in Gordy's personal history with Dr. Death Steve Williams. Doc and Gordy spent time either teaming or beating each other up in the UWF, Japan, and the NWA and WCW throughout the years. This match ended up having way more heat with the crowd than it had any right to do. And was a likely combination of the gimmick itself and the quality of the workers involved more than any feud that existed between the characters. Upon watching and rewatching, this match holds up remarkably well and stands out among the crowd. This really shows the quality or the impact the match itself had where, yes, the other War Games matches had rivalries, had intense feuds and characters. This match didn't quite have the heated rivalry but you still want to see it because of the match concept on its own. 
beyond in 1987 the laser lights were out that night team dusty versus the horsemen dusty rose nikita koloff the road warriors and paul ellering consisted of team dusty and the horsemen rick flair arn anderson tully blanchard lex luger and jj dillon this was the debut of the gimmick match itself in 1987 the blow-offs to feuds essentially included Cage matches. You know, they were either cage matches, I quit matches, and Texas death matches. Dusty Rhodes had a vision for something else entirely. He figured out a way to put together a match that wouldn't just blow off one feud, but several at once. It was a pure spectacle, and nothing like it had quite been attempted before. Ten men would do battle in two rings that were completely enclosed by a steel cage. Pinfalls out the window. This match only ended when someone would surrender or submit. 
It was about pride, guts, ability, toughness, ego, and a little bit of everything rolled into one. It took what the WWF would do to a whole other level a few months later with Survivor Series and added an edge to it and became one of the iconic matches in wrestling history. The original installation of the match is still one of the best, if not the best, arguably. As the crowd was going bonkers for wrestling history, for literally everything that had happened, history was being made. Dusty was near the height of his popularity. Nikita Koloff was a freshly turned face. The Road Warriors and Paul Ellering were perpetually over, and the Horsemen were the really hitting their stride after replacing Ole with Lex Luger. Everything came together for this match to give it the perfect atmosphere. Just look at those laser lights. Go back and watch the footage. This match is one of the greatest of the NWA WCW era. And some feel that really anything outside of the Royal Rumble has ever topped it in terms of gimmick matches. Often imitated, never duplicated, the original is still the best. In 1998, there was a War Games variation. WCW decided to try something different and converted War Games into a three-team, nine-man competition with the same cage and entry format, but they allowed pinfalls. This was for the number one contendership to the WCW World Heavyweight title. Team WCW consisted of Diamond Dallas Page, Roddy Piper, and The Warrior. Team Hollywood consisted of Hollywood Hogan, Stevie Ray, and Bret Hart. And Team Wolfpack consisted of Kevin Nash, Sting, and Lex Luger. This is when the NW was split into two with the Red and Black Wolfpack against the Hollywood Black and White. Hogan entered the cage early by force so he and Stevie Ray could take out all the other participants, including their teammate, Brett the Hitman Hart. When Hogan went to pin Kevin Nash, smoke engulfed the ring, and it appeared that the warrior had magically entered the cage. Hogan and Stevie Ray beat him down, but more smoke appeared, and when it cleared away, the warrior was gone, leaving Hogan holding his coat. The real warrior then ran out from the back to enter the match. Hogan would eventually force his way out the cage door with Warrior following suit by climbing up the cage wall and kicking it in. Davy Boy Smith suffered a near-career-ending back injury. Earlier that night, after he fell on the trap door WCW used for the stunt, Perry Saturn was also injured from the trap door, but not as severely. Diamond Dallas Page won the match by scoring the diamond cutter on Stevie Ray for the pinfall victory. He went on to Halloween Havoc to face Goldberg for the WCW title, only to lose after being hit with a spear and jackhammer. But this was a real turn for the War Games match, as it removed the mold or the format of having two teams in which they were competing for their for pride of a team winning as the goal of this match. And at this time period in 98 to get a shot at the WCW title and get three separate teams with three separate agendas. And I believe the current version of the War Games in NXT took a similar mold using the three-team format into the new version of the match. And finally, the year 2000. After no War Games match was held in 1999, Vince Russo brought back War Games in a new format he called 
War Games 2000 with the tagline Russo's Revenge. Nothing could go wrong here, right? It was held on September 4th on an episode of WCW Nitro in 2000. The match consisted of two teams vying for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship in a three-tiered cage first seen in the climax of the WCW-produced film Ready to Rumble and later used at Slamboree in May of that year. The rules combined the traditional War Games entry rules with the rules of the Slamboree match. The difference was that instead of the belt hanging from the rafters atop the third cage, the belt was actually inside the third cage. Also, once a wrestler retrieved the belt from the third cage, he didn't automatically win it as the case as the case and the, the slabbery match. This time the wrestler had to climb back down into the first cage and then exit the cage door. You get it? Oh boy. The wrestler who exited the structure with the title, regardless of whether or not he was the one to retrieve it from the third cage, won the match and the championship. Very convoluted to say the least. The match pitted Sting, Booker T, Goldberg, and Chronic. Brian Adams and Brian Clark against Russo's hand-picked team of WCW World Champion Kevin Ash, Jeff Jarrett, Scott Steiner, and the Harris brothers Don and Ron. The match had been scheduled as a four-on-four match with Sting, Booker T, Goldberg, and Ernest Miller against Nash, Jarrett, Steiner, and Russo. Earlier in the night, each man from the first team was forced to wrestle a qualifying match to compete. Sting beat both Vampiro and the Great Muda in the handicap match. Goldberg defeated Shane Douglas, and Booker T had to defeat his brother Stevie Ray. However, Miller lost to Chronic in a handicap match, making it five on four. Thus, when his turn to enter, Russo sent the Harris brothers instead, making it even. During the match, Nash teased a betrayal when he entered the first cage. He chokeslammed Sting, then grabbed Steiner, Jarrett, and Russo by the throats. However, as Vince Russo was later walking to the door, Nash grabbed and hugged him. The Harris brothers and Chronic drove each other out of the arena. Booker T retrieved the belt from the top, but Russo interfered on behalf of the team. Ernest Miller entered the ring, but was jackknife powerbombed by Nash. Steiner and Jarrett handcuffed Sting and Booker to the walls of the second cage. Goldberg broke free of the handcuffs, which held him to the turnbuckle of the ring, and attempted to leave the cage with the title, but was cut off by Bret Hart, who slammed the cage door on his face, right in, in, <laughs> right in the mush, and then Nash retrieved the title and walked out the cage door, retaining the championship. As convoluted as it was, the only reason I added this match onto our list is because I did like the three-tier cage concept. I don't like the convoluted storyline of grabbing the title of the third cage, but I did like the stacked tiered uh, cage concept. It looked cool in my opinion, and I think Russo just added the War Games moniker to it because it involved cages, and he liked the War Games name. But this wasn't a true War Games match. It wasn't dual ring. It was triple cages, but not dual ring and not the same feel of a typical War Games event. This match would really signify the end of the War Games era in WCW history. 
after WCW was purchased by the WWF, most were concerned that this could have been the end of war games in its entirety in professional wrestling history. However, the concept was used, like I stated earlier, for, for promotions such as Combat Zone Wrestling, Major League Wrestling, and others. Most, most recently, like I stated, NXT under the WWE umbrella would bring back the war games. No roof over the cage, uh, which I didn't like. I like that that unique style of having a roof similar to the Hell in the Cell. Uh, maybe WWE thought they had the branding of a Hell in the Cell already with the roof over, over the, the, the top of the cage plus the Elimination Chamber, too. Very similar to a, a War Games concept. But War Games was back. I love the look of having the two rings side by side. Yes, it does take tickets away and take money out of the pocket of the promoter, but it was unique. It's once a year. You know, It was a special event. Those that did the Great American Bash Tour earlier on, of course, lost some revenue by having it a part of the tour. But that's what made it unique, a part of the Bash Tour, having the unique concept of the match. Just seeing those two rings side by side, it looked cool. And then, of course, being updated this year as typically both rings were set up next to each other. There, there was a small gap in between both rings. The w, the WWE this year, let's say, blended the gap and covered it with... Uh, it's like a metal plate in between both rings, which made it look even cooler. Just another way to update the concept. And yes, it did make sense too, because the cage was, was a little bit higher and the stars in the match were able to do flips, backflips, moonsaults, etc. Where like we saw with the Sid Vicious spot with Brian Pillman, which you couldn't really do in a cover cage. Yes, maybe you can make the cage a little bit higher so you can perform power bombs, not have to worry. But I kind of like the lower cage, the more enclosed cage. It made it seem more intimate, more dangerous. Yes, the submission only uh, rule to the match where pinfall was out of the question. Yes, maybe change the momentum of the match where you're just submitting as opposed to having the impact of a pinfall. But again, it made the war games unique. One of the most iconic and exciting events in professional wrestling history, WCW made War Games, and I hope War Games will continue on. I hope maybe it's brought to the main roster one day in WWE. But nevertheless, we'll never forget the War Games and the rivalries between the Four Horsemen and Dusty Rhodes, Nikita Koloff, Ricky Steamboat, Sting, then the NWO being involved, splitting up to Wolfpack and Hollywood. The War Games has brought up brought us as fans so many memories. Thank you, WCW, for bringing us the War Games. You're listening to the Retro Wrestling Podcast, Beyond the Bell. You can listen to Beyond the Bell on iTunes, Player.fm, the SNS Radio Network, Podbay.fm, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and our official website, btbcast.com. Connect socially on Facebook and Twitter at btbcast. Watch retro videos on our official YouTube channel, btbcast network. Questions, comments, and suggestions can be sent to contact at btbcast.com. Go old school with Beyond the Bell. On our next installment of Beyond the Bell, as we're at the tail end of Season 1 covering World 
Championship Wrestling, I have decided we're going to look back and summarize Starcade as a whole, the history of Starcade on our next edition of Beyond the Bell. Then after that, we'll look back at some of WCW's greatest gems in its history as we cap off the first season of Beyond the Bell, looking back at World Championship Wrestling. What I had decided, like I stated, covering Starcade as a whole, the whole history of Starcade in one episode, but I will in a separate season to come, not next season, maybe not the season after that, but in a future season, we'll break down episode by episode each and every Starcade in its history. So Starcade will be separated in its own season as we'll break down each Starcade in detail, individualized, but next week will be a complete history of the granddaddy of them all, as they like to call it, WCW did, precursor to WrestleMania, WCW's version of WrestleMania, Starcade, which was also brought back recently by the WWE as a part of a house show. Nevertheless, the history of Starcade on the next installment of Beyond the Bell. Until then, my old school wrestling fans, this is your old school party host, Sean Beckerman, signing off. Until then, stay old school, my friends.